0: reported that they felt less depressed, less anxious. Their relationships improved with their family and loved ones. They were more social. People were more outgoing. They tended to exercise and eat healthier, which is something we, we don't do too well with as psychotherapists, right? So all of a sudden their health improved and they felt better about themselves. They were less critical, more accepting. And they also reported something that I've never seen result from psychotherapy is that they had a philosophical shift in their relationship to the world so that they were more connected to nature and um, more spiritual.
1: Hello and welcome. This is John Price and you're listening to The Sacred Speaks. I've got all these books spread out all over the place and uh, a couple of references, so I want to kind of be able to define a few things before we get started and then let you know about the music and various websites and point you in the direction of a couple of resources and then uh, get to the conversation. So first I'll begin with Something important, which is you know the sacred speaks the ideas. I, I'm the ideas that are really fueling and giving life to this whole project is looking at spiritual or religious experiences, and in a way that uh, seeks to open up daily living. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. Just pay attention to your life. I'm a psychotherapist. And that's certainly one of my objectives in the work that I do. It's not that I want somebody to become some particular religion. It's that if we begin to attend to our lives and those seemingly mundane aspects of our lives in a way that um, takes another look at what's there, things tend to open up and people have more meaning more engagement, more excitement, more, or I should say less depression, as you'll find out in this episode, less anxiety, or rather they're more able to kind of manage and deal with or make space for anxiety. A metaphor I tend to use is that, you know, if you take a small glass of water and put about 100 drops of red food dye in it, it's going to turn really red, and as you get the receptacle of water larger you know five gallon bucket, same amount of red food dye it's a little pink but 10 gallon bucket 50 gallon bucket swimming pool so on and so forth the red food dye doesn't change but the way it's experienced the context shifts and it's relativized and I I think if if that doesn't seem appetizing then you're not paying attention um, To be able not to change or eradicate or get rid of anxiety, for example, but to, to shift the context in which we experience it so that it's relativized in a way that it's not so overpowering and overwhelming. And to be clear, I'm not talking about those moments that are overwhelming that kind of crack something open. I'm talking about the daily kind of residue that affects decision-making, that affects and distracts us from things that are more meaningful. And it, it, again, it's not to get rid of it. It's to look at it differently, to learn from it, to get curious about it. And that's, that's really what I'm getting at by relativizing. It's not this kind of approach where people say, I want to get rid of my anxiety. It's I, I want to learn from it, and I want to engage with it and dialogue with it in a different way. And that becomes something powerful and has a lot of potential. So with that, I, I'm, I'm moving into these religious experiences that are in the world of entheogens or psychedelics. It's a world I'm really curious about. And full disclosure, I'm, I'm talking to Dr. Rachel Harris about ayahuasca. I've not experienced ayahuasca. So I'm a, I'm a kind of a bracketing researcher here. Um, which is to say, for for any I hadn't known this term, bracketing is an idea um, while completely impossible, meaning we can't bracket out our identity or who we are, our perspective. We can do our best to free ourselves from judgment and preconceived notions and really get curious about an event or a phenomenon or uh, an individual. right? I mean, even if i'm if I'm angry about something and somebody's trying to communicate something to me, and I'm only seeing my anger,'m I'm, I'm not really listening. So to kind of set my anger to the side and be able to connect with the person is quite an act of consciousness. So that's what I'm doing here today. It's not that I don't get it, because I'm a student of religious experience, and what you'll soon find out is in the world of psychedelics or entheogens, these are certainly religious experiences. And I'll quote from William Bernard, who's a... A uh, professor at uh, SMU here, uh, here in Texas, and he's written a lot about entheogens. He says in, in one of his pieces um, In Cleansing the Doors of Perception, a collection of essays on the religious significance of entheogens, which are mind altering substances that, quote, generate a sense of sacredness within, such as psilocybin, peyote, or ayahuasca. Houston Smith emphasizes that the experience is catalyzed by entheogenic substances are virtually identical to classical mystical experiences. He cautions, however, that while these substances appear to be able to induce religious experiences, it is evident that they can produce religious lives. So then that takes us to another definition of something important that I want to set up for today, which is mystical experiences. And I'll reference briefly William James categorized the mystical experience with four um four aspects right that uh, one it's it's we tend to experience some idea of the other or more um, there's a certain noetic quality where we're given some insider revelation we tend to we tend to experience we, it tends to happen to us we're passive in the experience it's transient so it, it doesn't last very long think about a dream you try to remember in the morning and it goes away and it's ineffable right I mean I, I can't Tell somebody what it's like to look at a beautiful sunset. I can't communicate my experience of seeing the Grand Canyon or watching my daughter or my son be born. Those are experiences that only I have. They're phenomena that happen to me, and while I can get close, my language, as we all can understand, doesn't qu- isn't quite sufficient enough. So it's a it's a pretty private experience, um, and. And that, that in and of itself, as Dr. Harris will talk about, is not an uncommon experience. I just don't think we talk about it or relate with it much, so people tend to write them off. So uh, I think she says something about a, a large percentage of people have, have reported having, quote, religious experiences. Now this is not the religious experience of, of some kind of dogma or institution, it's kind of... Notice these four things are not saying you have to be a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim. It's saying that there are qualities that are experienced in all those groups and beyond, in and out of those groups. Atheist, agnostic, uh, or a more kind of conventional religious experience. Okay, so what I want to do is uh, introduce some of the music you're hearing. Uh, earlier you had or heard a clip from Taylor Young. He's an old friend of mine and uh, has, we recently played a show together. He's an amazing drummer and also just so happens to be an incredible songwriter and singer and performer as well. So he just put a new album out, uh, or the single's out, it's called Shine On Me, and at the end of this episode you'll hear the full song. Uh, look in the liner notes of the of the episode, whether you're looking on iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play or wherever it is, and you'll see some links I've provided and you can get to Taylor's, uh, an article and a video, um, his music video, and uh and his Instagram account. And also, you uh, can look on the website, thesacredspeaks.com. I'll be posting his video. So thanks, Taylor, for uh, letting me use your tune. Um, What else? I guess there's a good point to say that the, uh, or this is a good time to say that the music, the theme music for the podcast is Modern Nations. And you can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. So we all know uh, what it's like to question who we are and what's the nature of life or of consciousness. And while you may not have that language, we're, we're all seekers and psychologists, though we may not have the, the license or the degree. You know, on some level, every one of us is curious about why in the world we do the things we do and how we think what we think and what our reactions are about. And we look back at some of them and say, what was going on there? I wish I could do more of this, or I wish I could just stop that pattern. So this is what somebody like Dr. Harris has been doing, is saying, like, how do we we change our way of understanding the nature of our nature? And this is not an easy question to answer. We're certainly talking about, as far as I'm concerned, really wonderful things to dialogue with and to get curious about. Yeah, let's get into Dr. Harris. So what I want to say, I want to read her bio and then... Let's see, okay. Psychologist Rachel Harris, PhD, is the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. She was in private practice for 35 years working with people interested in psychospiritual development. During a decade working in research, Rachel received a National Institute of Health New Investigators Award and published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals. She's also consulted to Fortune 500 companies in the United Nations. Rachel was in the 1968 Esalen Residential Program in Big Sur, California. This intensive six-month program focused on meditation and body work. In the early 70s, Rachel studied with Dorothy Nolte and the movement system, structural awareness based on Dr. Ida Rolf's structural integration, or Rolfing. Rachel also co-edited the Journal of the American Dance Therapy Association for three years. Awareness of how people live and move in their bodies has always been an aspect of Rachel's approach to psychotherapy. During the mid-80s, into the early aughts, Rachel led workshops at Omega Institute, New York, and Esalen Institute, California. She wrote 20-Minute Retreats, Revive Your Spirit in Just Minutes a Day, with Simple Self-Led Practices, Holt 2000. This book describes many of the psychological, meditative, and body awareness exercises she taught in a workshop. In 2005, Rachel traveled to a retreat center in Costa Rica and serendipitously found herself with the opportunity to drink ayahuasca with Ecuadorian shamans. The morning after her first ceremony, Rachel began asking big questions about the therapeutic potential of this medicine. She conducted a three-year research project with Lee Gorell that resulted in a study of ayahuasca use in North America, published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, summer 2012. Rachel is the co-author with Dorothy Nolte of Children Learn What They Live and Teenagers Learn What They Live, uh, 98 and 2002, Workman, and the author of 20-Minute Retreats. Rachel spends eight months of the year in a remote island in Maine and winters in Napa, California. So I, I read her book cover to cover and thoroughly enjoyed it because it, uh, it it takes a perspective that can also, you know, oftentimes we hear about these kinds of experiences and they're not formalized in this way, but she's been doing this research for many years and uh, it's a it, it's an opportunity to hear from her. You can reach her at listening to ayahuasca, L I S T E N I N G T O A Y A H U A S C A dot com. Again, for any information on this or any of the podcast episodes, go to the sacred dot com. You can also search that on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, uh, I try to keep up to date and post everything on the website, so check that out. You'll have bios from all the participants, links to all the conversations, uh, and music videos that I'm that I'm posting for all the bands I'm using in this process. Okay, I think that's it as far as preparation and housekeeping goes. Oh, the uh, the other thing to note is that there's considering Rachel's on the remote island off Maine, um, the internet was not fantastic. We connected over Zoom. And so there was a little bit of a delay. I, I I was able to manage it a bit, but the quality is not perfect. So I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening and thanks for all the participants and musicians and I'm really grateful. I'm here on a on a lovely Friday and I I've said it probably three or four times that I really adore and respect the spirit of adventure of everybody who's been saying yes to me to have these conversations and you (laughs) are definitely one of them. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful. I'm happy to be here with you. (laughs) And uh, I will have given an introduction in the beginning. And so, um, we, we can, you know, we don't have to go into that, but, um, it's a pleasure, Dr. Rachel Harris, to have you sitting here on the sunny day wherever you are, and yes. <laughs> a nice sunny day where I am too. Um, so today we're gonna we're gonna explore your book, uh, and kind of kind of go off book whenever we need to. Um, I've I've just I finished reading it this week. The book, Listening to Ayahuasca, and it's you know we certainly hear a lot about psychedelics today in a in a much different context than when I was growing up, for example um and i'm i'm curious where you tend to like to begin during these kinds of explorations do we begin with your history what got you into this where does it start for you
0: okay i can i can begin there so you know some if if you some people just were searchers from the from their childhood yeah. and i'm in that category and I, i'm not unique i mean some people just have always wondered and um I had a sort of spiritually philosophical mother, and so that helped, so it was a natural inclination. And uh, so those kinds of yearnings and searchings led me to the residential program at Esalen in 1968. I was 21 years old, right out of college, and Esalen was uh, fairly disorganized back then. (laughs) And they didn't really know how to run a residential program, but they thought they should. There was interest in it. People signed up and gave them money, so they did it. So, and I was in the third one, and it was the first, so this is, this. we were 11 people, And it sounds a little indulgent now, but all we did is work on ourselves for six months. So it was very intense. I mean, we were working in a group 40 or 50 hours a week, and it would have been a lot better if we'd known what we were doing, (laughs) but it was still fairly early. And, And the theory of this program is they brought in some of the top people in every therapeutic system back then. So we worked with Fritz Perls and Alexander Lowen and Houston Smith and Suzuki Roshi because there was a real emphasis on meditation and body work. We all got roffed, and it was a pretty intense experiential process. And it was the first Eslin residential program that actually held together as a group. The first two kind of fell apart and scattered, and you know people ended up working in the kitchen and the garden, and it was it really didn't work. So we were the first group to really come together and, and we stayed together for the full six months. And then most of us remained on the staff. So I was at Esalen for a couple of years, um, right after college until about 1970s. And then I was in and out a lot. And with that kind of experience, I was pretty much ruined for graduate school. There was no graduate school that I could go to. I'd already worked with I'd already worked with the top people Uh and no graduate school had this kind of, um, orientation and approach. So, uh, um, I, you know, I just sort of took off on a sailboat for a couple of years with a, a boyfriend. (laughs) We'll just skip that part. (laughs) And, um, so then when I was ready to go back into graduate school, I, I I basically, for my own protection, didn't mention any of my experiences at Esalen or the people I worked with, who I was now studying, many of them. And um, I began to focus on research because it seemed like a safer route than clinical work for me. And uh, so I ended up in a research office at a medical school. Under the mentorship of a, a well-established female researcher in social sciences, and I spent a wonderful decade there, reading and writing and thinking and talking, and it was it was really heaven for me. And so that's the research background. But I think we started out talking about psychedelics, and I mi- I missed that that line, and so I'll go back to Esalen, and of course there were psychedelics at Esalen, yeah. and it was just my nature not to be wild with them. There was uh, so whatever I did, I did in a kind of a spiritual nature setting, and you know we were pretty isolated at Esalen. I I was not going to music festivals and that sort of thing, and so. The meditation background really provided a container for the psychedelic experiences. The, the funny story from, from that residential program is the 11 of us, it was a plan to hike from Esalen, which was on the coast, across the Santa Lucia mountain range in Big Sur to Tastahara, which was the first Zen center established in the United States. But none of us were in shape to make a 20-mile hike. (laughs) And we were following Dick Price, who was slightly crazy and also a runner (laughs) ahead of his time. And so we got stuck a couple of miles in, in a national forest, and the rangers came and arrested all of us. (laughs) and brought us back shamefaced to Esalen in time for dinner. And then the next day, you know, we drove all the way around to, you know, around the mountain range and got to Tassahara. And this is when Suzuki Roshi was at the very beginning. I mean, he was really quite um, powerful. And um, all this, you know, there is a, a Tassahara bread book and I think some vegetarian cooking books. But back then in 1968, all they served was mush, it was like a gruel. This was <laughs> three times a day. <laughs> this did nothing to entice me into a life of meditation. And, um, you know, you would get this slop and you'd you'd have to eat it all because there was no place to dispose of it. I mean, every everybody was expected, it was precious. Everyone was expected to finish this precious glop. And then, you rinse your own bowl because we're like now sort of monks for a week and you rinse it out and you drink the dishwater <laughs> and then you set it aside yes you're with me because it has all these you know whatever little grains are left over and then you set it aside and that's your bowl that you use for lunch it was pretty rigorous i i of course hated it and but that was an introduction to <laughs> meditation, but what stayed with me from the, I mean, this is what Esalen was like. We had extraordinary experiences, but what stayed with me from that week of meditation was Suzuki Roshi gave a talk and um, it was totally incomprehensible, but as he was talking, I knew he was talking about another state of consciousness, another world, And I just sort of went into this incredible spacious expansiveness where I don't remember a thing he said, but I remember the shift in consciousness and it was, um, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm talking about it as if it happened yesterday and really it's 50 years ago I'm talking about this. And there was something in his presence and whatever it was he talked about that opened something up in me that was vast. And, And Esalen had that, you know, because of their contact with these extraordinary people, I was exposed to these kinds of experiences at a very young age. And it took me a long time to figure out how to integrate them and make them a part of my life and to find a way to savor these experiences and allow them to mature in me and also find a way of being in the world and and managing to get through graduate school. So that kind of describes my 20s after I left Esalen. But I was there for a good couple of years, and that has always been the foundation for me.
1: Would you describe as best you can, I know this may be difficult, but what do you mean by shift in consciousness, extraordinary opening.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not claiming any permanent enlightenment experience or awakening. It was, kind of a glimpse via Suzuki Roshi that he was, he had the capacity to speak about the process of meditation in a way that opened something up in me, Mm. um, that I've never forgotten, have continued to feel. And the way it's worked in me is I've always, uh, had a close relationship with the spaciousness, as opposed to the content mm-hmm. of my consciousness. So it it really um, it ma- it made a mark on me in in that kind of way.
1: Well, yeah there's there's a uh, it's, there's a reason why they call it ineffable, right? Is it? That- yeah, you, you exactly. Can't, uh, you can't quite get to it. So, yeah, no, I think you. No. I think you did though. Um, that there, it, it sounds to me like one of the aspects of that experience is that it's still with you.
0: It is still with me, and you'll. Yeah, will we'll come around to this um, uh, distinction between. The content of our awareness wow. and the awareness itself. We'll come around to that again in more psychotherapeutic ways. Yes. And uh, so it, it. There's no question that this has stayed with me on many levels, even though I don't really understand what happened.
1: Well, so that that's a good. Um, if we can, that's a good uh, bridge point to. This is, this kind of conversation about, you know, in general, altered states of consciousness, certainly altered states of consciousness induced by some substance. People tend to be a little more open to hearing about an altered state of consciousness induced by, you know, an intensive meditative experience or even a trauma. But when it comes to uh, substance, and I, I, in quotes, right, I don't, I don't entheogens or, um, psychedelics, people get really scared, and I, I, you know, from from my perspective, this may be leading a bit, but there's some kind of ego fear that says, "Hey, wait on, wait a second, you can't, you can't go shattering my worldview here because I, I cling to exactly. that every day." And I, I mean, the idea that I can actually shift my <laughs> well, world we are right is on
0: it, terrifying. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's, yeah, I want to be spiritual, but don't disturb my yeah, ego. <laughs> don't
1: don't mess with that stuff. I don't actually like feeling right. like I'm uh falling <laughs> and terrified and have nothing to stand on. So, right. so let's 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 do a do some work there for a second because I
0: Yeah, I'm I have something I wanna say oh, about please. about that. That's mm-hmm. that's a little bit in contradiction to what you're saying. And that is, and I try and fit this into almost every talk, but here's a perfect place for it. Great. Because I think we have to change our cultural framework for this. And that is that the Gallup poll and the Pew uh, survey, you, you know them, these are the biggest sure. national surveys, statistically representative. And they ask some version of a question of, have you had a religious experience that changed your life? Some version of that question. I mean, I I've I can get it for you exactly if you want, but it doesn't really matter. I have a couple of notes here, but that's generally the question. Fifty percent, almost like forty-nine percent, almost fifty half the people say yes to that question. So yes, when we talk about. So-called drugs, you know, there are some people who are just afraid about drugs. But if you ask about have you had a religious or spiritual experience that made a difference in your life, people are much more likely to say, yes, I did. And, and then if you begin to ask them about it, it can be around a near death experience, a shared death experience. It can be a, an intense visionary dream. I mean, they're all it can be out in nature. There are all kinds of spontaneous ways that people have peak or mystical, full mystical experiences. And in our culture, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Because people think they're crazy. Oh. This is why I like to include this in every interview. And it has nothing to do with ayahuasca.
1: So as a psychotherapist, I think it's um, it's common for us to talk about these kinds of experiences with people. So my worldview is informed by hearing or even just nudging people to take another look at whether it's a sexual experience or a trauma or, you know, any kind of, quote, religious experience or dream. And to kind of give it a little bit of energy for them to really work with it, because there's a part of so many people that want to just write that off because, like the, like the artist in us who is shamed for coloring outside the lines, you know, <laughs> it's scary to say something that may get you judged. And you know, talking about a religious experience, you know, we don't we don't talk about those as much openly in the social spaces.
0: No, he, here's here's the way people start the conversation with me. I've never told anyone this before, but. I had this experience years ago, and, th- and sure. then I know what's coming. Sure, that's yeah. what's coming.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely, yeah. And then, and then there's kind of a look over the shoulder or checking of the phone to make sure the phone's not recording anything, <laughs> or the you know there's nobody over my shoulder, because that you know I don't know how good of a job we do at you know, my son will walk outside of his room when he wakes up in the morning and I'll be cooking breakfast and he'll say, hey, dad, I had a dream. And I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll say, tell me about your dream. And it's Uh really fun. And I'm not trying to get all wacky. I'm just creating a relationship that really affirms, uh, turns towards him when he talks about it rather than kind of brushes it away as something that shouldn't be talked about. Right. Okay, right. so so we're yes. at um, yes. Where are we now? Let's let's.
0: <laughs> well, it was it was really the Esalen Foundation and the the psychedelic experiences in the late '60s in California that when I was called to ayahuasca, that it made perfect sense for me to say yes.
1: But what and, did you, what and did you my... research?
0: It was uh, behavioral medicine, social science
1: research. Okay, so you were just earning your stripes, doing the, getting down the process. Because that, that was, was your research on these kinds of experiences or were you researching mm, whatever the lab told you to research?
0: Well, it was an interesting research office um, because we had the first project project that really looked at uh, hospice counseling. So that's a different kind of research office. This yeah. is in the 70s. Yeah. And um you know it was it, we interviewed a lot of people who were dying and the clergy who were the, the hospice workers who were tending them. A lot of them were clergy. Um so that was an unusual one and but it was still in in department of psychiatry it, it was still a straight research office but it was very open and forward thinking.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But NIH was not ready to fund um, these kinds of things for another 20 years when they they opened up an I think alternative medicine committee to begin to look at those kinds of grant applications. So I was out of my timing was out of sync. That was the thing with going to Esalen so young. I was out of sync with graduate schools and 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 the professional world. And it happened maybe 20 to 30 years later.
1: Right. So when did your? I mean, I, where do we go next? Because now you've you've done ten years in research, and I'm sure there. T- I mean, I I just imagine that if you're looking at death and dying, that's really informing a lot of your understanding of these kinds of psychedelic experiences.
0: No, it wasn't at that level. It was still an NIH funded project. It wasn't at that level. Um. And that was just one of dozens of projects. That many of them were just straight looking at depression or drug addiction and recidivism. I mean, you know, it was the standard kind of social science research office. Um, but what happened was, I had a baby, and in the in the early 80s, I was married. I had a kid. That meant the end of a research career because a research career is 60 to 80 hours a week, and now I had a little baby. So um, that was the uh, when I I had already been in private practice, in a small kind of way, and I just let that let that develop as my daughter grew up. So when she went to school, I had a full time you know when she went to kindergarten, I had a full, busy private practice, and so I was really a householder for all those
1: years. Yeah, and then so, so I lived. The- I, the part-time I
0: lived in Miami. I lived uh-huh. in Princeton New Jersey. I was a, a not quite a soccer mom. I was a, a musician's mom. that's why I asked you about the music. I was a musician. my daughter turned out to be a musician so um you know it was driving her to music lessons. It took a lot of time.
1: <laughs> what did she play?
0: She's a singer uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I remember yeah uh-huh. I remember reading that now that's right
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a different kind of life. And when she was finishing um, graduate school, I I was living in New Jersey and searching for a winter vacation, and a friend had told me about this retreat center that had um, was lodged between the Pacific Ocean and a rainforest in Costa Rica. And I thought, well, that sounds good. It was February in New Jersey. I was... I didn't even look at the program hardly. And when I did look at the program, I didn't recognize the buzzwords. And so a day or two before I left for Costa Rica, I get a phone call. And the logistical person says, do you want to participate in the ceremonies? And I said, what ceremonies? And it was two ayahuasca ceremonies, or two or three that first week. And so, of course, it felt like a perfect um, a chance to go back and pick up where I left off from my youth, <laughs> and so I said yes. I flew down to Costa Rica, and there were some Ecuadorian shamans working at this retreat center, and Jeremy Narby, Narby was there giving lectures. I mean, there were just—it was a small group of us, maybe a dozen or so people, and uh, we were all in this little retreat center for a week, and it was—it was pretty fascinating, and that was my introduction. Yeah. Yeah, the other person there is David Abrams, who's written written beautifully about mysticism in nature. So, but I didn't know who these people were. I so it didn't ring any bells for me. So I just went for this for the beach. <laughs> <laughs>
1: mm. What happened? And next? it changed my life.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it changed my life, but I didn't, I you know, I think this qualifies as being called. But also, you know, being totally, um, ignorant, basically, you know, just, uh, and so this whole other world then opened up for me and, and from, you know, I had, a a a full mystical experience my first time. I mean, I was totally cap- captivated by this medicine and, um, And, you know, the next morning, as any researcher, psychotherapist, I said, how does this work? How does this work? It was such an amazing therapeutic and mystical experience. How does this happen? How does it work? And I had, you know, I had done acid and mushrooms. I'd had some, but nothing like this. This was totally different. And so, you know, I just kept following that question, and it led to an initial research study I did, uh, and that got published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, and that led to my book. But I was, I was really led pretty much completely blind.
1: So let's let's go into the um, the when you talk about your book, because you you were doing qualitative research about, for, for, for people to ex, um, explain or report their experiences. Uh, it was-
0: yeah, there was a quantitative aspect to that study, but it was too boring for the book. <laughs> I, I should have sent you the research article as well. I was able to compare, I, to compare people who had used ayahuasca at least once with people who attended a Catholic retreat weekend. And I was able to compare the two groups. No,
1: you did you did reference that. I recall that you 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 spoke of that, yes. And so could you understand? Yeah, well some most of, of it
0: got edited out. <laughs> 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 Even then people complain about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Come on. We're you know, we're researching some right. relics here. This is that's, boring. Yeah, that's not boring. <laughs> so t- could you talk a little bit about that? The the study itself. You know, what got you into it? what did you find?
0: Well, I felt I was I was, you know, this is going to sound a little corny, but I felt that Grandmother Ayahuasca gave me a mission. And I felt, well, how brilliant of her. I'm the perfect person to do this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I may as well talk about my ego here. I thought, well, she's so, you know, so smart to ask me to do this. I'm, I'm not limited by being uh, faculty somewhere. I can do what I want, right? I don't have to worry about my research reputation, um, I have the skills and experience. I had private funding for the study, you know, oh. that paid for the data analysis. I, I, had a friend with a nonprofit who gave me about ten thousand dollars. Oh,
1: that's wonderful. Um,
0: that paid for the cost of the research. I, um, I had, I knew the right people to help me with it, and uh, there was one point where um, I had talked to. My an old research mentor, actually my old mentor's mentor. So this is like the, the generation up because my research mentor had died early. And so I went to her research mentor and I talked to him briefly about it. And he was very supportive. He was 80-something at the time. And then sitting in a ceremony, I hear Grandmother Ayahuasca's voice. And she says, contact Lee, again, involve Lee in the research. And I say something sort of snarky, like, oh, I've already talked to him. And she says, no, involve him in the study. And so I call him up. I mean, this is a nationally known researcher who's won all kinds of lifetime awards from the American Psychological Association. And, you know, he's had this sterling national career. And I I say to him, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me I should involve you in this study. And there's a pause and he says, "Okay." <laughs> and so we really, the, we really did the study together, and we had a great time working collaboratively. We had always wanted to, and we, we never did. And so this was really fun for both of us. And and at one point, when we were looking at the the statistical data, I again called him up, and I said, "I have another message from Grandmother Ayahuasca. She gave me." statistical advice and we had found a statistical difference between the ayahuasca users and the Catholic retreatants and it was in it, it showed that the people who had had at least one experience of ayahuasca were um, had just a, a stronger spiritual response to a to a, a follow-up questionnaire and it had to do with relationship to the sacred and and um, you know their own kind of spiritual experience, and they were just a tiny bit stronger than the Catholic retreatants. And we were going to publish it that way. And the message I got from grandmother ayahuasca was that it was a statistical difference, but it was not. It didn't mean much. It wasn't. It was like a difference between a 3.75 on a five-point scale and a 4.1 it was it didn't really have a huge clinical significant difference and so i asked my dear friend to look at the data again to look at the means and even though it was statistically significant did it were they really that much different and the answer was no they weren't really that much different both both groups had Legitimate spiritual experiences and reported feeling different afterwards. This is not a controlled study. There was no random assignment, you know. There was no pretesting. I had two two groups that I uh, could compare, not a not a control group. And so we wrote it up in accordance with what grandmother ayahuasca recommended. And at, at the end of you know the. The the paper was getting published. I said to Lee, "You know, there should be a third author on this paper."
1: (laughs) So, and he agreed. (laughs) Okay, so for the people who are are going, okay, this is crazy. You know, I know. You know what? What Mm -hmm. is it? This is nuts. You know, uh, who's talking to? Because you you address this in the book, which I really like, because this tends to be some of my ontological conflict, also, which is yes you know okay so the, there's that one layer of like well no that's like a projection right that's a part of you we all hear voices they 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 whisper to us and they speak to us but you you're really putting it as a, a an external there's an objective component I go
0: back and forth <laughs> but my but I have to tell you my experience is that it is an other it is an unknown unseen other and because the colloquial uh situation is people are calling the spirit of ayahuasca, grandmother ayahuasca. Um, That's how I refer to her in the book. But basically, she is an unseen other. I have never had this voice before. I don't have it very frequently. It's been very focused on the research study, actually, even more than the book, Um, And it's not, It's you know, I I don't hear it very often. And I could differentiate when I was told to do the research, involve this mentor, this research mentor more. That was during ceremony, so I was under the influence. The information that came through about a second look at the data analysis, I was not under the influence of anything.
1: And you... it
0: was, and yet my experience was: it was the same voice, it was the same source. Right.
1: Okay, so for the head exploding, this sounds I'm crazy. Sorry. No, it's great. <laughs> I it's it's where where we need to go. But let's oh, let's <laughs> kind of parse that out a little bit because yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'd mentioned earlier about the biopsychosocial spiritual model, and I think that, you know, for any kind of materialist uh, leanings that anybody has, I, I think we need to go into the biological components because there's some real biological aspects of these uh, of these experiences and these substances that ha- fMRI studies. That, that kind of what we're doing with neuroscience current day is really saying, no, wait a second, this is there's something very, quote, real that's happening. So could you address some of that, kind of uh, some of the biology of what's happening when people use ayahuasca, for example?
0: Well, you know what it does, is it's gonna go against where you, the, the, the theme that you were trying to go for, is we know that all the all the traditional psychedelics reduce activity in the default mode network. And the default mode network is really important for us to understand as therapists, because it is that um, inner voice, inner rah, 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 <laughs> inner machinery, that is going on like 60 some percent of the time. Yeah. It's uh, this is the, it uh, includes, the ruminating voice. It's the ruminating voice. Yeah. And rumination is an important part of depression. So it's an important symptom or cause. I mean, who knows? But the default mode network is where we ruminate. We worry about the past. We worry about the future. Um, we we have our self-critic active and alive in the default mode network. We're judging ourselves. It is it's, It really runs most of our lives. 60% of our conscious time is spent in the grips of the default mode network. And and that's why it's called that. It's what's on when we're not focused on something specific. So when we're just driving or going for a walk, or this this default mode network, which is not an anatomical structure in the brain, it's a network, it crosses different structures, it is lit up. And the psychedelics quiet it. Meditation also can quiet it. And, but meanwhile, it is kind of the engine that fuels what we think of as our ego. This is this is the active, active in present construction of our sense of self, our ego, our world. And so everybody's default mode network is different, and it's designed to maintain. It's sort, of, uh, it's sort of like having, a, you know, if the electricity goes off, you have a generator. This is our generator of our ego. <laughs> it's sources, the energy is sourcing how we maintain our, our structure con- of the constructed world and our constructed self. So this is what generates the content of that large, spacious awareness.
1: Well, and this, so this is related to uh, you know, you said ego, right? So it's this cohesive sense of self, the identity, the narrative, but it also takes in, it's related to our culture. So we, 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 this is the kind of, um, the seat that's filled with the various messages and ways of being that the culture says that, uh, that we need for a living, right? I mean, that's, cause that's part yeah, of the, that.
2: The,
0: the general culture, as well as the programming from our childhoods, yeah. from our family culture, it's got the whole program
1: and then the other thing that i uh, you were writing about was the the role of serotonin in uh, in ayahuasca
0: well all all the psychedelics increase serotonin in the system, and um when they've looked at ayahuasca specifically for, uh, in in terms of its effectiveness with depression, the increased serotonin lasts about two to three weeks, and then the serotonin levels fall and um, the depressive symptoms begin to return. And what's interesting is the um, Santo Daime Church, which is a Brazilian church that uses ayahuasca as a sacrament, they tend to have meetings every two weeks or so. And so people are getting another dose of ayahuasca so it's, it's almost like they're getting an antidepressant in her and and so we have a good number of studies that show that people who become members of the santa daimi church they benefit from the social support of the church and they are also benefiting from regular doses of ayahuasca and ayahuasca is not addictive and so when people say well you're you you have you keep needing it well, people need their SSRIs, their antidepressants every day. So yes, if we want to increase serotonin in the system and treat depression, we have to use whatever medicine we're using repeatedly.
1: So when did this, what, what just to get, I guess, to get ego-based and linear for a second, when did this study on ayahuasca begin for you? What year was that?
0: Well, I published it in 2012. I should say we published it in 2012. So it took a good three, four years to do the study. It was like a second dissertation. Sure. Um, So, you know, I collected data from 81 subjects. I interviewed a lot of subjects. I I followed them up for years. And so I had a lot of qualitative and quantitative data.
1: Would you share some of that? Can we get into some of those stories? What you what you learn about the v- various experiences?
0: Well, you know, people reported that they felt less depressed, less anxious. Um, their relationships improved with their family and loved ones. They were more social. The people were more outgoing. Uh, um, they tended to exercise and eat healthier, which is something we we don't do too well with as psychotherapists, right? Um, So all of a sudden their health improved. uh, And and they felt better about themselves. They were less critical, more accepting. And they also reported something that I've never seen result from psychotherapy, is that they had a philosophical shift in their relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. So that they were more connected to nature, and um, more spiritual. And that's something that doesn't come out of a psychotherapist's office in general. Maybe with Jungian something happens, but not in in a general psychotherapy office. And people consistently reported that. So most of those um, reports are exactly what we look for in psychotherapy, that people are more self-accepting, their relationships improve, they're healthier. They have less symptomatology with depression and anxiety. This is this is what we look for with our clients. And so this is absolutely what people were reporting. Um, and then in addition, there was something else they reported that this is a little theme running through our conversation, is one guy said something like, I still have some symptoms of depression and anxiety, but... They don't bother me like they used to. I have a different relationship to them. So you hear that kind of shift. It's not like it's a, a, a miracle cure for everybody that, oh, you know, hallelujah, I'm no longer depressed. But yes, I still have some symptoms come up, but I don't, I don't feel like it's gonna last forever. I'm not totally discouraged by it. I don't identify with it as much. I know this too shall pass. So I'm more accepting of it. That's the kind of shift that's really interesting to me.
1: And you're not talking about BS numbers. We're talking about people who genuinely report all of these experiences and have really transformed. And the, the reason I say it like that is because my first thought there, when you're talking about acceptance, so I, people report having a different relationship with the world. I immediately think about how the world has, has, it's shifting, right, but has really had a difficult relationship with psychedelics. And with that kind of evidence and those kinds of reports and radical shifts in, you know, one setting or a few settings, I'm not trying to prop it up as some kind of miracle cure or anything, but why, do, why, do, why does the collective struggle so much and have so many fears about these substances? Well, I, I,
0: can, I can respond to that question a couple of different directions. Uh, some of the studies are using psilocybin with terminal cancer patients and getting similar responses. Uh, people are less depressed, they're in less pain, and they're better able to use the time they have remaining to connect with their loved ones, and they are less afraid of dying. So they're less likely to sign up for um, extreme medical procedures, you know, save my life for a day or two. You know, they're less likely to spend a lot of money on medical procedures and, and toward the end of life. So, and who can deny the use of a psychedelic to someone who's dying of terminal cancer? I mean, just in terms of compassionate care, this is, you know, we have to make this possible. So that's, you know, in terms of research, that's in the process of moving through the pipeline to become a treatment for people with terminal cancer. So maybe it'll take another five years or so, but that will eventually become available. And so that's a shift in the culture, because I mean, who, who, who could we be more empathic for than people who are dying? And they report these same kinds of changes in their worldview and a shift in their relationship to their own dying that they're less afraid. Um, but I, you know, there has been a longstanding cultural fear of psychedelics, and some of it uh has, you know, did come come out of misuses of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, and when it was the research was being done to see if it could be um, weaponized, used in a military sense, mm-hmm. and, and it was not being used in a, in a sacred, careful, protected sort of way, the way it's now being used in research, which is a very safe setting, respectful, and they're not finding any Nobody wants to jump off a building. It's, it's, they're not finding any difficulties with it, so a lot of it depends on set and setting. And so the research that's being done is very careful with that now. But there is, there is research that shows that people who have these kinds of mystical psychedelic experiences are less, um, they're more likely to be more liberal in their political outlook. Not everybody wants that. So it is threatening to the status quo in many ways. And it does shift a sense of what's real and 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 what's important in our society. And people do tend to become more active in terms of uh, conservation and protecting nature. And that's not valued by everybody in our culture.
1: Well And so you're you're also talking about that kind of we're all one component. you know, like there's a connectivity, so it's really hard to have an enemy uh, when you when you want to love everybody.
0: Well, I, I I've never heard anyone actually say they want to love everybody, but what comes out is a sense of greater responsibility toward nature. And that we have to instead of um exploiting nature for profit, we have to be more protective and and conserve nature. So th- that that is what that's how people come out and they begin to do volunteer work and whether it's the Sierra Club or whatever it is, there's there's more concern for the natural world and protecting it.
1: Yeah, I certainly get that. Okay, so um, I feel a little bit like going into the jungle. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of us that, that haven't taken that trip to Costa Rica or wherever else. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about starting to understand because uh, i know you, you oh well, let me let me say this and then see if do do you have concerns about the kind of w- the westernization of these these experiences and how obviously we're seeing some kind of uh, resurgence of um entheogens coming to the foreground I, I, is there is there a concern about that or do you say no i'm i'm fully fully in support of it.
0: Well, I, I have a lot of concerns. Um, so you know, I want people to be safe for one thing. And as um, more people are using psychedelics and uh, ayahuasca, I you know i I'm very conservative in my approach. I want people to be very safe, to have sitters with experienced sitter with them. I don't want people to be alone. I want them to have a backup plan. Um, When people go into ayahuasca circles, I want them with an authentic, well-trained shaman with follow-up and and good preparation and careful attention to diets and medications. So there's all kinds of information, especially about ayahuasca. And also ayahuasca in the jungle, there's been a lot of problems for, for women being abused by shaman in the jungle, and so they have to be extra careful that that they're safe and they have a female with them. And some women are choosing to see um, to go to retreat centers where they only have female shamans working right. in in to, in order to protect them, because there have been way too many um, stories of rape and 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 molestation. So there are many many things to be concerned about, but it. From a research point of view, when these studies are done very carefully, the the psychedelics can be safe. So it totally depends on how people use them. Now, I I have to confess, as a Westerner, I'm interested in a Western use of all the psychedelics, including ayahuasca, which is not what is it's not an indigenous perspective, Mm -hmm. and it is. Uh, an adaptation of what is used for medicine in the jungle um, for a Western purpose. And so there is, you know, just as there are now yoga classes in every shopping center across the country, there's a yoga studio. You know, when these things come from another culture, they're going to change as they enter our Western culture. Um, There's real concern now that there are a couple of different organizations one is a for-profit organization looking at psychedelics and one basically acting as a for-profit pharmaceutical company and there are others that are non-profit that are more willing to share and 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 have their scientific findings be open and so there's current concern about that sort of split that's mm-hmm. happening whether it's a commercial Venture that's for profit only and whether it's a nonprofit that's more willing to share information. So there's currently uh, debate about that.
1: my I heard this a, a long time ago that that uh, I forget where I read it. Uh, and please <laughs> correct this because I'm gonna get it wrong. apparently when when the ayahuasca brew is made, it's a combination of two. Plants, correct? There's a yes. vine, and is it?
0: Shakruna, um, a Shakruna plant. It's from the coffee family. And, it's and, the leaves of the Shakruna plant.
1: And and again, my understanding is that because we have an enzyme that takes care of, you know, prevents any DMT getting into our system, the Shakruna is what quiets the enzyme so that the ayahuasca, the the DMT can be delivered into our system, right?
0: Well, it's, it's slightly reversed. It's the chacruna plant that has the DMT, and the I—I think, and the I—well, wait a minute. I'm I could be confusing it myself. But you're right. It's one of them, and so I'm just—I can't remember which one right away. But it, so they have to work together.
1: Here we are in a jungle with thousands of species of plants, and my, what I what I read is that because—and you have to. You have to have that. If I ate just one You have of them, to have the two plants. And so when these early shamans were asked, how did you know to bring those together? Their response was, the plant told me.
0: Yes. This is part of the mystery. So let's talk yeah. about that,
1: because as Westerners, we're, we're kind of treading on a, a metaphysical worldview that's radically different than our own. You know, talking to plants or, or or like listening to plants is not something that a lot of uh, materialist Westerners tend to say, oh yeah sure I was talking yes to <laughs> and trusting it right so right. Would, would you speak a little bit about that um, what is that worldview? I mean, can you say anything about that?
0: Well, the world is uh more alive to to the indigenous mind so, they don't have any problem with listening to the plants or or the animals, I mean, or the boulders, the rocks, I mean, or the trees. They are, you know, everything they are. I, I love this phrase from, from one of the um, people who are writing in this arena, Westerners who are writing, they talk about um, their, you know, the world is populated by humans and then non-human beings. So there isn't the distinction between humans and, and no sentience, no consciousness. It's, it, we're, there's consciousness in everything. Some, some are human, some are animals, some are plants, and, and some are unseen. So it's a world teeming with life and information. And there are master plants that are teaching plants, and ayahuasca is one of them. You know, there's there. I, I I think we're coming up to some research on the vine alone, the ayahuasca vine alone, because it has a lot of com, chemical compounds in it that can also be healing for some medical illnesses, especially um, brain brain issues like Parkinson's disease and that sort of thing. Well, so you know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done.
1: So
2: and
0: it's not all about with ayahuasca, it's not all just all about the psychedelic experience. These are plants with lots of options for healing in them.
1: See, it sounds to me that most most people who've experimented with any kind of substance, they they do it as kind of a release to let go, to check out, to to kind of get above or out of their, their experiences. And I think one fundamental shift in what what or, or, or sh- uh, difference in what we're talking about is that you're actually. It sounds to me like you're actually going in to connect, to learn from, to engage with this kind of, I even mean, immaterial or um, altered reality from the perspective of yeah. a Westerner.
0: Right. Right. I can. I can. Go ahead.
1: It it just seems like a conversation or a dialogue, rather than a you know like woohoo I'm having great fun and I you know this feels good. No,
0: it's not used at all like that. Especially and ayahuasca is just not that much fun anyway. (laughs) I mean you know there are issues around vomiting and diarrhea, so it's really not a good party drug. Um, But it, it from an indigenous point of view, there's a relationship with all the elements of nature and there's a you know the shaman i i have worked with he grew up in an indigenous community and didn't leave till he was 15 and went off to a boarding school so he was raised in an in an indigenous village in in panama and the his godfather was the shaman who trained him so he is really although he's a westerner he's grounded in this indigenous relationship to the to the world of nature and the unseen world and he was up here visiting me and I'm I'm on a remote island off the coast of Maine and so if we had chicken bones and you can't just we don't have a way of it's an island we don't have a way of getting rid of chicken bones you can't just put them in the bushes cuz Everybody has a dog and a dog will come and eat the chicken bones. So he and I went across the street to the Atlantic Ocean to a rocky beach. You know, the main beaches are all these big boulders, and we're going to put the bones in the ocean and it, it'll, you know, it'll be eaten by fish and seagulls. It'll be taken care of by the Atlantic Ocean. And so we come out of the woods along this trail and we come out to this openness of the Atlantic Ocean and this sort of sea of boulders. And we're standing there, and he sings the song. in In relationship to the ocean. It's not an it's it's a it's an Icaros. It's a indigenous song, so it's in in it's either in Spanish or an in indigenous language. I don't remember exactly, but that's his his thanking the ocean for for existing and for being there. It's his relationship to the ocean. That's, that's what I mean by a different relationship to the world. That experience with him is as important as any of my um, ceremonies with him. This is he relates to the world in a totally different way. I might come out of that trail and, and you know uh, to the openness of the Atlantic and say, "Oh, you know, isn't this beautiful? But he's in relationship to it. So there's a communion and a communication. And he he crawls over. He's young, of course young, everybody's younger than I am. He climbs over all these rocks, and I, I manage to get part way. And he's already down managing the slippery seaweed and depositing the bones, the chicken bones, in the in the ocean, and praying. That's his prayer. He's and so he talks about courting the elements, courting the ocean, courting the waves, courting the seasons. I mean it's this it's this asking to be in relationship with these different elements. It's it's a, a whole different way of being in the world.
1: <laughs> yes, yes please. <laughs>
0: And so, and so when you're in this kind of relationship with the natural world, you really don't want to go fracking. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, you don't want to tear things up and put an oil pipeline under a river that we know is going to leak. We know the oil wells leak along the coastlines.
2: Yeah. yeah, the,
0: yeah. So it's a different relationship to the world around us. And it's a much more intimate one and, and a much more caring one. And it is in direct opposition to supposedly the Western culture, I guess in the Bible it says, you know, you, you're, you have dominion over everything. Well, no, we are part of everything. We are only one. So it's a real shift in, in the world. And um, yeah, it's a real shift in the world. And people drink I, the indigenous use of ayahuasca is for many different purposes, including witchcraft, by the way, or stealing someone's spouse. I mean, there's it's used in a wide range of things, including knowing where the animals are so we know where to go hunting the next morning. And, um, and in the West, it's being channeled into a psycho-spiritual use, which is my interest and a Western interest, and very different.
1: Uh, so, what do but you mean by that? Psycho spiritual use.
0: Well, the, the people report great healing. I mean, um, so there's enormous psychological healing. I mean the I object to this, but the way they talk about it is one night of ayahuasca is worth 10 years of psychotherapy. I don't particularly like that. It would put, you know, you out of business and it would have ruined my career. And I don't think it's exactly true, but or ayahuasca is my therapist or one woman I interviewed a few weeks ago said because I asked her, why are you not, you know, things were coming, old business was coming up with her father. And I, I. this is how she described it. I've never thought of myself as an angry person. But after my father left all his money to my siblings and left me a dollar, I've been enraged for months. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> so, and she's seeking out more ayahuasca ceremonies. And I said, well, why don't, you know, don't you think this is a therapy issue as well? And her statement was, I don't really believe in Western therapy. I believe in ayahuasca. I said, well, I know a lot of people would agree with you. But I, of course, as someone who spent their life doing therapy, you know, I think a little therapy would help.
1: <laughs> you know. Well, so let's, let's so, go down that road for a second. How do you approach that particular issue therapeutically? and we can jump off book and maybe come up with another example. So we're not mining around in her content, but the when somebody comes in that has some kind of, you know, in therapy, because I, I really liked the way you would talk about how you work with people because you talk a lot about images and, um, and, and creativity and art and kind of bringing, bringing someone's relationship to their own sense of creativity, but not, not going out directly at traumas. So how how do you work as a therapist?
0: Well, I, I never worked in just one way. It always depended on what the person brought to me. And my belief um, from the very beginning and research supports this is that it's not about the therapeutic technique. It's what heals is the relationship. So it's about the capacity to have a, a strong therapeutic alliance and a good relationship with a client. And in in graduate school, one old professor said, um, because he knew many people in the program would be in private practice eventually, he said, if you don't love your client, refer them out. So it's about the relationship and there are many different ways to love a client and still be professional. This is not a sexual or personal emotional love, but it's able to love them as a human being. So where I would start with her is where many people would jump over and miss this is when she says, I've never thought of myself as an angry person, but I've been enraged ever since my father. So it's, I wouldn't jump right in on the father I would jump in on her kind of self-revelation to herself that this is different than how she saw herself and what does that rage and anger feel like and how does it bubble up and and what's her relationship to it? And I would work with that. Now this is someone I know um, personally, this is not a client, but I have to say my interviews are very therapeutic and uh, I I would have asked her to draw, To draw. I mean, if, if it had been therapy, this is where I would have gone, to talk more about what it feels like, w- what the rage feels like in her body, to draw a picture of it, and to keep drawing a picture of it and keep moving that experience of anger and rage and, and also what will come out as hurt eventually, and moving it out of her body on in, into a drawing. She happens to be something of an artist. Um, doesn't make her living as an artist, but this would be a natural way for her to work with it. And so that there's a process of moving that inner felt experience into the outer world so she can then look at it. And that will then change what's going on inside of her. So there's that process of inner moving into the outer world and back into the inner world and back out, and then beginning to find words for it, for what it feels like.
1: There's a similar kind of dynamic in what you had written about. With, uh, you know, I think it was Freud had said something about defense mechanisms and the, the personality being formed around defense mechanisms, defense structures. And I, I like where you're going with that in saying, like, I, I don't view myself as an angry person. You know, that sounds like a, 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 a defense. And, and yes. so she's defending, <laughs> defending against something. And I'm imagining that now if we go the other route, so when somebody is having that kind of revelation in a ceremony with ayahuasca, how does that come up?
0: Ayahuasca sessions are evidently all very different. And, you know, the one, uh, what I'm used to is a very traditional one where everybody's, it's a very internal experience. Everybody's quiet. The shaman is singing Ikaros, which are working on everybody, helping court the plants and the spirits and helping people heal. But I have no idea what's going on with someone else. Maybe I hear someone crying or vomiting, but nobody's talking or moving very much. It's very internal. So the integration happens the next morning, the next, they're what I call golden hours, where we have maximum. Um, neurological flexibility and a greater ability to see things differently, to change patterns, to learn, to um, be able to apply what we experienced in the ceremony to what does this mean in our life, where there's a, new connections are far more possible because of the, the psychedelic experience.
1: So there's and a that, l- and this- that's,
0: that shows up in the functional MRIs, that there are many more con- neurological connections made.
1: This is a liminal space where you're able to, you know, kind of consciousness and whatever else is is in uh, is the opposite of consciousness is interacting.
0: It is liminal in the sense that you you don't even have to be in an in an intense altered state, but you're not back in your normal state. You, you know, you're not back in the office, so to speak. So there's this liminal flexibility, and when you look at it um, under you know, with the functional, the fMRI machines, you you see a lot more lines connecting uh, different parts of the brain. So there's greater connections made. And there's also neuroplasticity, more flexibility in the brain, and also neurogenesis, new neurons are coming into being. So there's a maximum opportunity for change. And it seems to me that that's an opportune time for psychotherapy yeah but not everybody sees it that way
1: (laughs) so you you have a
0: but to me it's like why not
1: (laughs) it it seems like there's a little descent into hell and then you kind of have to work with what you excavated in the process
0: that can be sometimes the truth yeah yeah
1: so and it also what i what i thought there is that it it's a little like waking up from a dream
0: yes in a way and they they talk about the, the ayahuasca state as being a dream dream dreamlike with the visions
1: and so as anybody who tends to dreams know that knows that uh, there's that special time that i have that when i when i dream i have that voice that says oh this is a great dream i know i remember this i'll remember this one <laughs> No, and then then we don't got- <laughs> completely go i know there that's on a broader it can
0: be elusive yes
1: yeah so on a kind of a broader and maybe a deeper scale that that's kind of what that sounds like to me is that you have to bring some degree you, you actually have to go in and kind of take take with take with you the experience and and nurture it and work it a little bit so that the integration happens. And that's what you're saying right around psychotherapy. Is I,
0: I think so. It makes sense I, to me. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I know, but you're another therapist. It doesn't make sense <laughs> to a lot of a lot of other people just say, go for a walk in the woods, go to a yoga class, get a mm. massage. And it's like, no, I I think we can do more than that.
1: Well, does your research support that? Have you, have you looked at that?
0: I, no, nobody's looked at that yet.
1: Oh, this that, is a clinical sounds, point of view yeah that sounds i know that's rich. Going to be,
0: you know the research on ayahuasca is going to be way down the line right <laughs> um but they could do this research you know what they when they have looked they have followed up people after LSD and psilocybin right. 6 months later 18 months later and they find many of the changes are still they hold they do hold but those are people from research studies where i think you know after the day of the experience they come in the very next day and tell the story of their experience so they lay out their whole narrative in a therapeutic session that can last a couple of hours and then they they have a couple of other what's called integration sessions with that same therapist who was who did the preparation sessions counseling sessions was with them during the experience and now is with them after and they have other sessions where they can reflect on what does this mean for my life. It's not the same as ongoing therapy, but even just three or four sessions after the experience allows time to get a sense of the narrative and what does this mean to me in my life.
1: Well, that that I, I try to urge people, and I'm sure any of the people that I work with in my practice get annoyed with me saying you know have you journaled do you (laughs) (laughs) right you know because to me i i think you know a lot of this is uh, we need to have an ongoing conversation with ourselves and when we're not attending to those parts of ourselves and taking seriously those parts of ourselves that are you know looking to be looked at Then we miss out on all these opportunities to create a deeper and broader sense of who we are and therefore who the world is. And, you know, because, you know, we're looking out so much, and, and this may be a pretty played out sentiment, but we're looking out so much, and, you know, that we just don't really, we're not really, we in this culture are not really good at having an ongoing relationship with ourselves.
0: Right, right. So I can tell you the story of a guy who was early 80s, been on psychotropic drugs all his life, successful engineer. So he had a, a, a big career, but was always depressed, crazy, difficult life. And was on a whole bunch of different psych meds. He decided he was going to do an ayahuasca ceremony. He'd never done any psychedelic drugs in his life. I mean, I I don't understand how people have the courage to do this. It took him a year to get off all the medications he was on. He worked with a psychiatrist. Took him a year to get off them. He goes to a ceremony. He gets a very small dose. He has this wonderful opening. And he picks up a writing journal that he had studied years ago with Ira Progoff. I don't even know if you know him. He's kind of a Jungian from the 50s who had a whole system of teaching people how to journal and how to journal as part of their own inner psychotherapy, very structured kind of way. This guy had done that years ago because he'd always been searching for help because he'd been such a nutcase his whole life. He goes back and picks up this journaling that he does that's very structured. And he has this huge process of awakening. He comes back in and does a second ceremony, again, a very small dose, because, you know, this guy's 80-something. He has heart problems. You know, you don't overdose someone at this age. And he, he again, goes and he's been journaling. This has been going on for over a year now. And because I know him personally, he calls me every once in a while, and he is growing and loving it and continues to journal. And here's the research data. His wife, who's in her late 70s and has suffered with him for you know decades, says, this is the best thing that ever happened to our marriage. Wow. There you go. Two it, ceremonies.
1: Sounds like 10 years of psychotherapy. I'm just kidding. I don't mean... <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but this guy, it is no, it is. But the, he but he'd already had ten years of science. Yeah. He'd already done yeah. that. It didn't change much. But this guy had the 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 training to work with this particular kind of journal writing that is very therapeutic, where you write out dialogues of different parts of yourself. Uh-huh. So it's really a therapeutic process, but through writing, and he's been very dedicated working on it every day. So he's got his own process of moving internal voices and messages onto, on, in, into, out, out of himself into his journal. Then he can look at it and then the next day continue it. So it's this ongoing process that he's involved in. It's fascinating.
1: It's all fascinating. <laughs> so, my, I'm, I'm realizing, um, and I've, I've never had one of those experiences. I've never gone to the jungle, you know, and so, uh, you know, I'm assuming a lot of people haven't. I, I wonder if you could paint the picture of what that's like.
0: I only went to Costa Rica. I avoid South America. I don't want to go there. They have all kinds of bugs and scorpions and snakes. I am a Westerner. I am writing about Western psychotherapy and ayahuasca. But I did, you know, after I got seduced to uh, go to this beach retreat and ended up drinking ayahuasca, I came back. And like everybody else who has a good experience, I called up all my old hippie friends and (laughs) said, I just discovered the fountain of youth. (laughs) You have to come back with me next winter. So I got a group together and we all went back you know, the next winter and, and sat in a couple of ceremonies. I mean, these stories are wild. I I mean, listen, when we arrived back at this retreat center, who was there to greet us? Sting. He was there. (laughs) (laughs) He's written a lot about his ayahuasca experiences. And, and of course he's, he and his wife have done conservation work for, for the Amazon jungle. So, you know, there are a lot of different people engaged with ayahuasca. And I have dear friends who have gone repeatedly and regularly to the jungle in Peru and have trained with shaman and are leading ceremonies. And and so they talk about their own process of healing. And, you know, one guy talks about it was five years of ceremonies and living in the jungle for many, many months. Before he was allowed to actually sing the ikaros to do some healing work on someone, so there's a lot of of internal healing that goes on, and then it gradually moves into being able to help someone else with their healing. It's funny and you mentioned so, the ikaros.
1: I I just had an interview with um, with a woman who's a music therapist, and it really blew my mind the the sound and music, and of course they're talking about the relationship, you know, in music therapy. But I I couldn't help but be curious about the song component of the ceremony.
0: Well, uh, most of the psychedelics sensitize our ears, ayahuasca especially, so our hearing improves enormously. And so music becomes even more important. And so, I mean, one of the ways I know how authentic is the ceremony is I just sort of casually say, you know, someone's describing they're going to go to an ayahuasca ceremony or they've just been to one, and I say, well, was their music? And they might say, well, yes, he had a, you know, he, he was like a DJ. He had a recorded music. And then I know he's not a real shaman. This is not what a shaman does. And part of when the shaman is singing in Ikaros, that sound is wor- is working on your body, I swear, as much as the medicine. So the sound comes into your body in a different way than the medicine comes in. I mean, the medicine, you can feel it moving through your intestinal, snaking through. I mean, you can literally feel it. But the sound moves in in a vibrational way into your whole body. Ayahuasca is a very body-oriented psychedelic. And the music and the vibrations of the music are an important part of it, an important part of the healing. So this guy, in his own development in becoming a shaman, five years of sitting in ceremonies before he was allowed to sing to someone. That's a long time.
1: That's like a PhD. So,
0: yeah, pretty much. Well,
1: there must be there must be something to that about that kind of training experience, and certainly the apprenticeship model that that they're using. It's 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 a relational. Yes, but model. we
0: in our in our culture we don't. We don't value it very much. We don't value that kind of slow learning. You know, as craftsmen learn next to the master bricklayer, you know, the, the real apprenticeship. We don't value that in our culture. And so even that's a different part of the culture. So, you know, I've given talks where somebody comes up to me and says, well, I had my first ayahuasca session and she told me I should be leading ceremonies. And, you know, this person has had one... Ceremony, And I'm just speech. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I'm so speechless. So, you know, <laughs> we have to be very careful what kind of ceremony we go to and also not to be carried away ourselves.
1: Well, and that, that actually brings up something important, I think, in the book is that you talk about, and maybe... <clears throat> One thing that you, I had never at least consciously seen these two words put together and it clicked for me on something that I've really been thinking about a lot related to music, the study of music, the The term perceptual refinement. I read that and I just went, oh my gosh, that's it. That That's what that's I've it. been, that's it. The, as a psychotherapist, the word I use is, I, and I'll tell my wife this, where I'm saying like, I, I, I really, um, what's happening in the room I experience as texture. Yes. And there's no way you can tr- train that. And I think it's, it's no. because of the, you know, I do this day in, day out, you know, f- five or six days a week. I'm talking to people and something is. For energetic or some texture that it, I I can't tangibly feel it, but I experience it almost as as tangible in the room. I
0: I feel it, almost as tactile. There's a blending of your sensory perception in that, and 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 yes, that absolutely is a refinement. If you took on an apprentice, they may or may not experience it the same way. Here's how I learned about it. So, my daughter's a musician. So when she was I think maybe 11 she auditioned for a children's choir in Manhattan at the, uh, at the Manhattan School of Music connected to the New York Philharmonic. So <laughs> the, and uh, I was living in New Jersey so it was you know 2 hours each way and I drove her and I and I have no ear I, the musical ability skipped me completely. There're a bunch of musicians in the family another opera singer, my daughter's an opera singer, but I, I can't carry a tune. So it absolutely skipped me. So I'm like an idiot watching, and and I did this for a couple of years. I would sit in on the rehearsals of the children's choir where the conductor was teaching the kids song. These were kids who were like age, maybe 10 to 18, something like that. And they were being prepared to sing with the Philharmonic. <laughs> and, um, And they were really, you know, the audition, you know, you can imagine how many kids they auditioned in the greater New York area to pick the the 50th kids. And so, and, and also, you know, you'll love this. There was no choir choral director good enough in Manhattan. So they flew someone in from Pittsburgh every single weekend to work with these kids. I mean, it was, to me, this whole thing was crazy. You know, I was, (laughs) It's a world I don't really know much about. I just drove my daughter, so I sit and I watch these um, rehearsals, and the choral director stops, and she's able to pick out which kid is off, and and tweak what she's asking them to sing, just tweak it a little bit, and I I can I never can tell why she stopped, what she's hearing. I never have a clue. But what I learned was how, what tiny, tiny adjustments she made. So her perceptual refinement was so specific and and unbelievable, you know, just off the charts, so specific and subtle, it's not just that I couldn't hear it; that most people wouldn't be able to hear it, even other musicians. That's why they flew her in from Pittsburgh every weekend. So, and it was the it was the accumulation of all those small little refinements that she did that made the choir a you know a, a fabulous children's choir. So it's that really tiny, tiny little adjustments. It's the same thing with I have a. craftsman friend up here who by hand makes these wooden bowls and he sands them for months it's hand sanding and it's that you know he he sands them way beyond what anybody in their right mind would do and it's that's what makes them so gorgeous and smooth and shiny it's unbelievable what he gets out of the wood because he works with it so long so it's those really tiny little adjustments at at the high end of art that make the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's what goes on in the psychotherapy session. So I would have to say, you know, with my years of experience, most people would have um, gone right for the father in that example of the father who left this one daughter a a dollar, one dollar, and his other daughter's the rest of the money. But no, that's not where I would go. Often it's, you know, don't go to what's obvious. Go to her capacity to understand that she can have rage as part of who she is. And, and as you follow the rage, of course it will channel into her relationship with her father, but it w- and it will open up the pain as well and the hurt, but it will allow her to be more than she was before. It will enlarge who she is and who she accepts as who she is. So it will make more room for her, and that's what she'll eventually walk out of the office with.
1: Well, and how does this? So, if we if we kind of remap this uh, perceptual refinement onto the psychedelic experience, what happens for people who've, you know, in your book you've written about people who've done ayahuasca a hundred times? What have you learned about? people who are kind of able to be in that space more often, how, how does their experience differ from somebody who's either a never done it at all, or somebody who's only done it a couple of times, or is there a difference?
0: We, we don't know that yet. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really know that. And the people who've done it a hundred times, usually they're a member of the church. Right. So that's, and so that's different in itself because that's a, a different cultural context and a different belief system.
1: Well can can so these can, can this experience or rather maybe a better question is what happens when we take the westerners take ayahuasca out of the jungle how how does it still because you wrote I know. you wrote a lot about yeah. that it's i mean so here we've got these shaman who are talking to the plants and learning what songs to sing and how they want to tend to the these, this immaterial world. And then you go into a Western modality and it's just like, okay, we're going to freeze dry this stuff and you're going to take this capsule so we can regulate it and...
0: Well, there's conflict about that. I mean, that's certainly how they're using it in research because they can control the potency and dose that way with the freeze-dried capsules. But one, I think it was MAPS who wanted to do an ayahuasca study with authentic shaman and use these freeze-dried capsules of ayahuasca, and the shaman refused. The shaman said, the spirit is not in that capsule. We won't do the ceremony.
1: Right. Okay. That's like uh...
0: so that stopped that research flat. But... <laughs> so you see, there. I mean, this is why I say this is going to be the last psychedelic that gets researched, that gets studied, because it's so difficult.
1: Well, because there's an entirely different metaphysical assumption based upon. Yes, exactly. Uh, and there, therein that's lies exactly some of the right. core issue of the Western approach, which is like, I, I can't, I can't quantify it, I can't contain it, I can't control it so therefore right. I just toss it out, I, I can't research it.
0: Right, so the research is mostly being done in Barcelona and in Brazil, and they're using capsules, mostly. Okay. but but what but there has been some some studies that look at westerners and westerners have visions you know about the jungle and jaguars and snakes i mean when i talked about you can feel the ayahuasca moving through your intestines i said it snakes through your intestines it feels like a snake snaking through the snake of my intestines that's you know that's some some tribes and some indigenous peoples talk about ayahuasca as a snake, as a cosmic snake. So, you know, the images arise for Westerners as well, even if they're not in the jungle. Yeah. Which is really fascinating.
1: That's really fascinating, right. <laughs> okay, so- I don't know how
0: to explain that.
1: <laughs> I wanna be uh, sensitive to time. Do you, do you mind if we go about yeah. uh, 10 more minutes? Is that okay?
0: Yeah, that's fine. That would okay. be just about right. Great.
1: Um, I, let's see, so we've done that. I kind of wanted to get into what you were talking about with Stanislav Grof's progressive stages of visionary experience. I don't know that we need to. Um, I'm thinking about, oh yeah. So you, you wrote a lot about belief systems and how the kind of psychedelic, in particular, the ayahuasca experience May create the uh, the opportunity for somebody to get another look at some of their belief systems and i I may be kind of belaboring this point but i'm I'm really interested in your thoughts about defenses and how how let's how we are to i yeah I guess my my question is how does the general population, what what does the general population that may or may not ever have this kind of experience, how are they, what can they learn from those individuals like yourself who have had had a psychedelic experience? Right, because my, my understanding is that we, individuals that can, that go into the psychedelic experience and bring something back, they're learning things about human consciousness and our psychology. So, what are we to learn in the general population from those individuals like yourself who ventured into those spaces?
0: You know, I'd love I'd love to answer this out outside the psychedelic world, believe it or not. So, there was a psychologist. I guess it was two psychologists from New Mexico who studied people who had had these um, big. Uh, spiritual experiences spontaneously. Often they were in, in uh, you know how AA says you have to hit bottom to make a change. Often these people were in a crisis in their life and then had a, a huge spiritual experience that changed their lives. So no drugs are involved. But what's unique about this study is they interviewed them um, at one point in time and then they followed up on them a decade later. That's pretty rare. And they found a lot of the same people. Most of, you know, they found most of the original cohort. So they're able to follow them up 10 years later and ask some of the same questions. So one of the questions they asked was how have your priorities in life changed? Or what are your priorities? What were your priorities in life before? What are they after this experience? And what are they 10 years later? And before, the priorities were a lot about you know, I want to be successful, you know, I want to be healthy, I want to be beautiful, you know, I want to accumulate things. Very materialistic. After the spiritual opening that they had spontaneously, they wanted to do more volunteer work, help other people, you know, contribute to the world in some way. I mean, their priorities in life changed completely. They wanted to be more family oriented. It was a huge discernible change. 10 years later, what happened to their values? You want to guess?
1: I my cynical side wants to say they regressed to the norm.
0: Oh, don't be cynical. <laughs> 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 they stayed with their new value system. Wow. These are um, William James had a term for this it was they're they're non-linear you know they're, these these leaps in in human development happen and it's not what happens as a slow process in psychotherapy it's a non-linear leap and it it lasts he talks about it, you know, he, I mean, he was the, the first psychologist he wrote yeah. in the early 1900s, and he talks about this complete reorganization of the personality around a new spiritual center. This is how he talked in the early 1900s, like 1903, and that that new organization of the personality remains consistent, and when they asked about priorities 10 years later, these people were living them. Wow. It's, it's fascinating. So we don't have this data on psychedelic, but th- it's not just about psychedelics. It's about having these, uh, having the personal healing and the spiritual experiences, and we don't really know how one works with the other exactly, and well, that's that's yet to be studied.
1: And is the but concern they, that um, I, I get? I think I can't remember if you wrote about this, but. It seems like I think I heard Eckhart Tolle at one point saying that he he tried LSD because all these people were talking about LSD experiences. He said, whoa, yeah, I get it. Like that's a <laughs> you know, that's a cool experience. And it's pretty fast. It's pretty aggressive. Yeah. It can be pretty overwhelming. So you you have to be and I think this was Aldous Huxley's point. You you really have to be somebody that's paying attention and and, and like desiring to refine your connection and dialogue with this kind of experience right. and not just use right. it to like make your bad feelings go away.
0: Right. Otherwise, you know, tons of people would have been enlightened from the sixties and right. we sure as hell
1: weren't. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I know we got to close out and I'm curious what, if there's any other thread that is still hanging out that you want to return to at all?
0: Yeah, I do want to talk a minute about psychotherapy and ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say when I'm talking to therapists is uh, it's important to know what's a therapeutic issue and what isn't. So when somebody comes into your office and says, I had this incredible mystical experience, my heart opened up, that is not a therapy issue. That's a, You don't mess with that. That's a numinous experience, and all you can say is, "Oh wow." You don't you don't downgrade it into a, oh well that was your image. It's not actually your heart, you know. You don't downgrade it into a that's a psychological experience. You you respect it as an experience that's whole. Um, And they might want to talk more about that, and they might not want to. On the other hand, when someone says something like this woman, where I never thought of myself as an angry person, I mean, that is a red flag for a therapist. It's like, oh, goody, let's work on that. (laughs) Who doesn't have anger? So that's a therapy issue. And, And we have to be able to differentiate um, between experiences that come out of psychedelic, the psychedelic world, between what's numinous and we don't mess with, and what's a psychological issue, and Stan Groff says something interesting. Even though he doesn't, he's not a proponent of psychotherapy. Uh, he he thinks you just take, you just do more psychedelic experiences and it'll work out, which I don't agree with. But he does say it's helpful to know. Which of his realms that he delineates? Where does this come from? So does it come from the personal history? Is an is it an archetypal experience? Is it a past life experience? Where where is it coming from in in this person's history that goes beyond this current life? Is it part of their birth experience? That was another one of his matrices, and so. Oftentimes these themes can occur in all these different situations. from you know, people can have a theme from a past life that it carries out into this life. and the issue, whatever it is, can be worked on in different different time zones, even, sort of. So you know, I have a very um, cynical, dear friend of mine, a good a good clinician, and I said, you know what do you do when someone comes in with a past life story?" And he said, I I don't have to believe it as a past life story. I work with it the same way I work with anything, because it's part of who they are. So, but it's, it's, it's from a psychedelic point of view, all these different worlds and time zones are all present in the office with you. And it can be helpful to know what realm you're working in and how the issues have manifested in different realms.
1: Yeah, and I, I actually got that in front of me. Are you talking about the um, abstract and aesthetic, psychodynamic, perinatal, and transpersonal?
0: Yeah, that's Graf talks I, about. I, yeah, those. I wanted
1: to label that because that that also is, um, that's kind of core to, to my work, that I'm, I'm looking at those various layers of interpretation, and that is fascinating to me.
0: Yes, and I think it's helpful to know which realm you're in right. and how the same issue can manifest in different realms.
1: Yeah, so there's you know we're we're having tons of research right now on the epigenetic component, like the how how trauma, for example, is intergenerational. And so if you're when I'm sitting here with a client and saying like, oh, you're having these struggles, you know, I I wonder what was happening with your grandparents, and and because they're they are related, there's a ripple effect, and or in your family of origin, or in your personal history or in kind of the object relations component, like how I'm I'm doing to myself what was done to me. So the right and I think that's actually where we get into the when you have enough experience kind of seeing that in the in in the moment in therapy, that's that perceptual refinement where you're able to kind of have your finger on the pulse of, you know, what layer or level we're we're really working with.
0: See and so again, you had a tactile reference, your finger on the pulse, <laughs> yeah. right? And I experience it a little bit more spatially, but it doesn't matter. The yeah, modality, yeah. The, our sensory modality, doesn't matter. It's the refinement of being able to sense that where we are. And so, but but you're going to be tactile. So that's so very funny. yeah. Thanks very for
1: the, it, my my wife <laughs> taught yoga for many years, and she said in her training she. She was taught to say, you know, f- feel what's coming up for you. Listen to what's going on. right? Imagine uh-huh. or see where Try you want to be. cover <laughs> the waterfront. Yeah, cover all the bases of all the various. <laughs> right. so I'm obviously, a, you know, I'm in that tactile right. place.
2: <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Thanks for that.
1: That's good. Uh, that's good feedback. Uh, well, Dr. Rachel Harris. Uh, it is well, a joy. Been fun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks for spending the time on, uh, sure on this lovely Friday. And I, I can just tell you and urge anybody to buy this book. It's so speaking of layers, it's so valuable on so many different layers, but I, I think what thank you've you. done is you've given a real, um, clinical and grounded approach to some content that can be pretty wacky to people a lot of times. And, and, <laughs> I think that's so valuable to do. And, you know, I got a lot of people in my practice that think journals, journaling is wacky. So,
0: um, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm grateful for the words and the study that you did on, um, on not only the psychedelic experience, but how people can, can move through trauma and addiction and, uh, anxiety and depression. So, listening to ayahuasca is the book, and I'll I'll include that in uh, on the I'll include links. Is there any anything you want uh, you want to say? How people can reach you?
0: Well, through through my website, which is listeningtoayahuasca.com, they can email me through the website. Good. I actually answer.
1: Good, and I'll I'll put that on the um uh, in, in the intro piece, and then we'll also have a link for, for people on my website. So, thank you.